everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take the deepest and smartest dive possible into what it means to be human. Today is episode number 40, and I have on Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, who is one of the world's leading experts on religious violence and terrorism. Now, when I say world's leading experts, I certainly do mean it. Today's guest, Professor Mark Jurgensmeyer, is has been for the last several decades traveling around the world, studying and interviewing people involved with groups associated with religious violence from India to Sri Lanka, to the Middle East, to the United States, and across all religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, you name it. It's, it's, got, it's got violence. It's got violent partic- participants. So Today, I have a fantastic conversation uh, with the professor about his experiences and the books he's written and the ideas he has. And we talk a lot about religion. And I ask the question, and I think it's one of the biggest questions we can ask ourselves today, one of the most important. Does religion cause violence? Does religion cause terrorism? These are important questions. People are out for blood in a certain sense. I know so many people who just think ending religion will end all of the world's problems, but it won't. It really won't. And today's podcast will demonstrate why not. Now, of course, as we discussed today, there are many ways in which religion can participate in and exacerbate and provide channels for people to be violent. But the causes of violence are, as ever, deeply embedded in our psychological needs as human beings. So we get into all of that today. We talk about uh, religious discourse in America today and globalization and how the world is changing and the way people are responding to it. And maybe, maybe what might be able to be done in order to help relax everything, chill everything out a little bit. Uh, So I want to read you a little bit about the professor and then uh, then we'll jump right into it. Uh, Mark Jurgensmeyer is an American scholar in sociology, global studies and religious studies and a writer best known for his studies of religious violence and global religion. He is Distinguished Professor professor of Sociology and Global Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Mark Jurgensmeyer received a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the University of Illinois in 1962, an MDiv, that's a Master's of Divinity, from Union Theological Seminary in 1965, and a PhD in political science from the University of California, Berkeley in 1974. Look at how he sort of tracked in his disciplines. Um, I think that that's really cool. Philosophy, theology, and political science. It's a really nice mix. He's also done graduate work in international affairs at Columbia University. He is now regarded as an expert on religious violence, conflict resolution, and South Asian religion and politics, and has published 28 books and over 300 articles. He's been a frequent commentator on news programs, especially after 9-11. So it's a huge honor to have him on today. He's a delightful guest, um, really animated and charming, as well as uh, cuttingly, incisively uh, smart and insightful. And so... Uh, do enjoy. You know how to get at me if you have any questions about the podcast at Naked Humanity, at Stephanie Ruper on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And I will provide links to all of Professor Jurgen Meyer's works uh, in the show notes. So do check them out. Okay. Thank you. Here we go. Great. Welcome, Professor. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I 
have told you, I haven't told my audience yet, but uh, I am a massive, massive fan of your work. I really appreciate uh, sort of the the nuance and the cross-cultural take. You know, it's really hard to find a lot of high-quality nuance and cross-cultural discussions about big, important topics like terrorism and violence. And so um, thank you for, for bringing that to our field. Uh, thank you for saying so. That's very nice of you. Yeah, it's uh, it's just it's just true. So, um, can you give us an overview of the things you study and and why? I know it's a lot, but sure. Maybe it would help by telling you how I blundered into this topic, because nobody's born a terrorism expert. It's not like a little kid, you know, trying to figure out. Oh, I want to be a fireman. I want to be. A, I want to be a terrorism expert. It doesn't happen like that. So you blunder into it by studying something else. And in my case, it was a conjunction of three different things. I study religion, I have a theological background, and then I also have a PhD in political science. So I have an interest in religion and politics. And then for years, I lived in India. And so most of my earlier works are about social movements and political, political and social and religious movements in India and how the three aspects are kind of configured together. And in the 1980s, there was this strange... A spiral of violence between young Sikh men and the Indian government, the Khalistani movement, led by Sant Janal Singh Bindarwali, which led to a horrible instance in 1984, Operation Blue Star, in which Mrs. Gandhi attacked the Golden Temple thinking she would get rid of Bindarwali and his terrorists and all the horrible things they were doing, which were genuinely horrible. I mean, they were kidnappings and hijackings and all kinds of horrible things. And she ended up killing Bindarwali, but she also killed a thousand uh, devotees had just come at pilgrims to the Golden Temple. And of course, six all of the world were incensed and then the movement continued for another 10 years or so. And I wanted to know why. Because these could have been my students. I taught, I lived in Punjab for several years. These could have been my students at Punjab University. How could they be so swept up in this angry spiral of violence with the Indian government? What was there about this kind of Extraordinary madness that sometimes seizes people in this side of uh, vengeance of uh, what I later began to call cosmic war, swept up in a, a, a notion of great, uh, almost divine existential warfare between good and evil and right and wrong. And so I went back to the Punjab and I talked with people. <clears throat> and what I discovered, interestingly, was it was not so much uh, – and it's all on other religions. It wasn't the Sikhs were angry at Hindus or Muslims, but they were angry at the secular government. And there was a notion that somehow what we think of as kind of the sine qua non of a good, ethical, moral, civil society, that is secular, civil government. I say you and I, assuming that we're part of the kind of academic, uh, intellectual <laughs> elite. And, but I think... You know, most people, at least in, in the secular societies of the West, most people, I would qualify that because I'm thinking about the politics of our area, era, which increasingly has become religionized and increasingly has become assaults on the secular state. Well, in the 1980s, that was happening earlier than it happened in the United States or in Europe. And it was happening in India. And I wanted to know why. And that started me on a project that led to a series of books, including the one uh, that you mentioned, Terror in the Mind of God, where I, I try to understand what's in the mind of people who are involved in acts that to us seem so cruel, so heartless, so pointless. And from their point of view, 
are part of a great moral crusade. And that does seem odd because it's easy enough to understand why bad things are done by bad people. But what if bad things are done by good people or people who think that they're doing something moral, they're part of a cause, they're part of something that's, that's existentially and spiritually vital to them? How does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so that was the, the mission on which I went. It was really a quest to try to understand something that seems so beyond understanding. It was what all of us academics do, really. We're like detectives, you know. We take a problem, we take something that seems really odd, an anomaly that doesn't seem to make sense, and we try to make it make sense. We have to try to see how it does make sense within a certain context. Mm. And so that's what I try to do, to try to recover that context that gives uh, people the sense that they are empowered, that they are spiritually somehow uh, elevated by acts that we see as heartless, cruel uh, acts of terror. Right, and so... You're in the study of religion, uh-huh. and we also tend to associate religion, terrorism with religion, right? In today's discourse, you rarely hear people talk about terrorism without thinking, oh, like, what's the religious motivation? Uh, right. So how is it that terrorism ends up being something that's a part of the study of religion? You know, how, how do those two concepts intersect? Yeah, and why are those two things happening now? Uh, it's a good question. When I started my quest uh, that ended up going all around the world, because what started in India became a comparative quest going to every part of the planet to try to figure out really two questions. Why religion and why now? What does religion have to do with it? And why is this such a feature of our particular moment uh, in history? And what religion has to do with it, I think, I hinted at when I talked about this image of great warfare, a great cosmic war, and every religious tradition is full of it. I mean, you read the Hebrew Bible or the Quran or the even the, you know the great Hindu epics of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, and even within the Buddhist traditions, there are great battles between Hindu and Buddhist kings in the Mahavamsa and the Sri Lankan Chronicles. So in every religious tradition, you have these great images of battle and warfare. But for most of us, these are kind of metaphors. These are metaphors of the war within the self. You know, the great jihad from a Muslim perspective is the jihad within the soul, the struggle to try to purify the self. But they're about real war. And they can be implanted. These images can be implanted onto the social scene. You can not just politicize religion, but also religionize politics. You can see the conflict in religious terms in a way that kind of lifts them up into the high proscenium of religious drama. And in doing so, make them really extraordinary causes, in some ways impossible to negotiate, for example, because you are involved then in your imaginations in a kind of cosmic war, a battle between good and evil and right and wrong, you know, where the enemy is just the hopeless agents of Satan and can be, you can do nothing with them except destroy them. So religion gives um, an extraordinary power to people who are engaged in a conflict, especially a conflict that they think they're losing, a conflict for which they have no other sources of power. Uh, and for that, uh, that, religion gives this sense that, well, even though we may think that we're losing, you know, 
God is on our side. I, I interviewed uh, some of the leaders of the Hamas movement in Gaza, you know, in the Israel-Palestine struggle. And I interviewed Sheikh Hassan, and I also interviewed Dr. Rantisi, who is the kind of political head of the Hamas movement. In a long conversation, I said, at one moment I felt comfortable enough to say to him, he said, you know, these acts of suicide terrorism against Israelis are, you know, obviously they make a huge impact, but, you know, you're fighting one of the largest armies in the Middle East. They, you can't possibly defeat the Israeli army by these means, and he kind of smiled and, and looked at me as if he was looking at a small child. And he said, well, maybe not in my lifetime. He said, maybe not in my children's lifetime. Maybe not in my children's children's lifetime, but maybe in my children's 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 lifetime, we might succeed because this is not our war. This is God's war. Mm. In God's war, we must succeed. So if you think you are in God's war, this gives you a certain kind of power and an endurance beyond the timeline of a contemporary struggle. So even though a battle may seem uh, a suicidal, it may a skirmish that may end in the deaths of all of those who are fighting, the remaining com combatants would not see this as the end of the war. They would just see this as one sign that the war is not yet finished and that God has larger plans. You know, just last month I was in Iraq, in northern Iraq and Kurdistan, uh, interviewing uh, some of the ISIS fighters who are now in prison. It was a rare opportunity to actually do what I want to do, that is get inside the mindsets of people who are actually fighting for what they see to be these extraordinary religious causes. And what, what I discovered is that many of them felt bitter about, about the the fact that ISIS now has been eradicated from territorial control in Syria and Iraq. But they were bitter at their own leadership. They felt that their leaders were corrupt, that they were not doing all that they could in order to, you know, to actually lead the mission. But in general, they had not abandoned the cause. They still believe in this kind of a strange apocalyptic imagery that ISIS has appropriated out of medieval Islam that most Muslims, of course, have no interest in and don't care about it, they don't believe in. But, you know, I, ISIS has a strange millenarian uh, kind of apocalyptic vision. And they're still in that mood. They said, if, if we got out of here and they said we had the proper leadership, we, we would kill again. We would fight against the, the Zionists and the Crusaders, against you Americans. And I kind of kind of shied back because the warden had let me talk to this guy in a, in, a, in a closed room. I was just there with my interpreter, this guy. He was a huge, big, hulking 30-year-old Iraqi. <laughs> and I'm looming over me. I had a pen in my hand to take notes, and I realized this pen could be a weapon. I kind of slipped it in my pocket. <laughs> and he said, no, no, he says, not you. <laughs> he said, see what I was doing. He said, not you. He said, I know you're a professor. You, you'll get the word out. He said, besides, he says, the time is not right. But the point is, the time was not right, that his, this image was still implanted in his mind. And, and I kind of came to the conclusion that, well, you know, a lot of people have wacky ideas. And as long as they're not killing other people, I guess, you know, and at least for now, he was safe. He was in prison. And even if he was out without a movement to be a part of, I don't think he would just randomly go out and start. Mm. Killing people, although some people associated with ISIS do. And of course, that's part of the, one of the continuing 
uh, problems or difficulties, the continuing uh, vestiges of the ISIS movement are these uh, kind of random isolated people who still seize with their imagination with this great cosmic war and feel like their single act, even though it's suicidal, will be to the benefit of the whole and that somehow God's plan will be fulfilled. Mm. It's empowering. So that's what religion has to do with it. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very, religion is an empowering thing. Max Weber said that the only thing that sanctions violence morally uh, is the state, is the political actor, but there's another, and that's religion. So mm -hmm. religion is the one thing that can trump the moral uh, uh, monopoly that the political offices that the state has over morally sanctioned violence. Religion can provide that uh, ability for people to uh, to kill with, imp with impunity without any sense that they are uh, they're doing something morally corrupt. It's a disturbing truth, but it is it is true. So religion is empowering. The next question is why now? And for that, I think the two things help me, me understand. And I'm explaining this as I'm just as, as if I just sort of discovered it while talking to people. And that's true. You know, that is true. I'm just telling you things not that I've kind of figured out at my desk and then I'm planted on the rest of the world. I mean, I genuinely went out in conversation with people who were involved in in violent acts with with a kind of Giles curiosity, why are you doing this? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's the oldest sociological method in the world. If you want to know why people do stuff, go and ask them, you know, just engage them in a kind of conversation where you get the rich texture of their lives and the whole context for what they're doing. And as I said in the, in the sick case, I was surprised to see that they were not in battle with Hindus or Muslims. Not directly. I mean, there were some Hindu leaders that were targeted, but inso they were targeted insofar as they saw them as agents of the secular state. So there is this notion that in some way what we think to be the moral edifice of secular nationalism was insufficient. It was morally insufficient. It was politically insufficient. And that this was not just a national problem. This is a, a greater problem than just in one region. And that the, the other cue for that was the virtual global character of these movements. Mm -hmm. And that that's part of the why now. Why all over the world, this particular moment of history, uh, are movements springing up that seems to challenge the, the moral sufficiency of the nation state with new notions of nationalism or transnationalism uh, in movements that are empowered by religion, which is the one vehicle, of course, that can empower uh, uh, a challenge, a revolution against the state. Religion is always inherently revolutionary. It always had potential to challenge the moral character of the, of the nation state. Dr. Martin Luther King in his letter in Birmingham jail, I mean, that we have this notion that, that moral laws, uh, uh, you know, laws from God can challenge uh, with uh, righteously the power of the nation state. So why is, why is this happening now? And it's happening all over the world. It's happening globally. And that was the second cue, that the very nature of the global ubiquity of these movements hints at the power of globalization, this new force that has emerged in the world you know, in the last several decades, but certainly after the end of the Cold War 
to challenge the authority of the nation state. We're increasingly in a globalized world. Everything is made everywhere. You know, there's no longer national economies. There's no longer national. Uh, there's no longer national social organizations where any, everybody can live everywhere with extraordinary demographic shifts, and you can see them as part of the politics of the time. You know, if you look at the, the two things that empower Brexit in, in England and the rise of Trump in the United States, it's issues over trade and, and immigration, two characteristics of globalization, where you can, you know, the economy is now merged on, on a global scale. There's no longer single siloed national economies, but peoples are no longer siloed in the kind of national communities that they, they used to be. And culture is certainly not siloed with the rise of, of not just the the audio and video media, but now with the internet and where instantly you can be online with everybody anywhere and you can form these transnational communities. We live in an increasingly globalized world. We can't, everything we do for the moment we get up is kind of linked with this larger pattern of globalization, which undercuts the traditional notion of the national community, nationalism, and the national nation state. So it's understandable that in this kind of sense of uh, fragility of the nation state international connection, which we thought in the middle of the, when I was a graduate student, especially 50 years ago, this was the character of the world. This is the way the world is, is now. This is the way the world is always going to be. But the nation state is a kind of universal uh, kind of artifact that is then political artifacts and planet of the rest of the world has existed really only since the middle of the last century. And by now, you know, it is under siege. It's began to weaken. And of course, there's a rise of neo-nationalism. That's one of the reasons why there is a rise of neo-nationalism. These kind of desperate attempts to reclaim, often in religious terms, whether it's in Russia or whether it's in, in, uh, in Germany or France or, or Austria or, or the United States, to try to reclaim in religious terms the character of traditional nationalism as a kind of dying gasp. It's not going to work because globalism and globalization is a part of the future. So what I was looking at were really early forms of exactly the same kind of phenomenon, this kind of uh, attempt, attempt to reclaim a sense of self mm. uh, in a social location, because all of us need that in some way. We're social beings, we humans. We like to understand ourselves in a social context. We want to know who we are. And that means we want to know what community we're in. And I've seen a remarkable rise of kind of ethnic tribalism in the United States where there's one of my, one of my graduate students, a wonderful woman who came from a Muslim uh, family from Afghanistan. I knew her mother, you know, were, were very sharply dressed with coiffed hair, you know, and, and, and short dresses and so forth. And, and Sarah came to class one day wearing a hijab. And I said, Sarah, what are you doing? <laughs> she said, what do you mean, what am I doing? You're wearing a hijab. She said, yeah. And I said, why? I know you. You're not all that religious. She said, yeah, but I'm Muslim. I'm proud to be a Muslim. What's wrong with that? I said, look, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just wondering why suddenly you're doing it. She says, because I can. Mm -hmm. And she was really quite insistent. She had a right. Of course she did. I didn't mind that. And, and, and she, was, she did wear it for a while until she came to me and said, Mark, you know, this is becoming too much of a hassle. You know, people look at me funny at the bus, you know, and I said, I'm going to stop wearing it. I said, look, whatever you want, but <laughs> I understand. But 
you know, that one incident, maybe it's a silly one, but it shows that there is this sense that I think that all of us feel of wanting to claim an identity, wanting to, it's, it's funny, I used to, I really disliked being German, you know, coming from a German family, you know, especially during the two the wars that my father had experienced you know, being alienated as a German, World War One, World War Two. But in recent years, I've regained connection with my German family in Westphalia in Germany, and I've been to the family farm, and we have kind of a connection. And I'm not saying I'm proud to be a German, but <laughs> ethnically, um, but I can understand that sense of wanting to locate yourself socially in some sense of national community and how globalization has challenged that for all of us. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's easy by projection just to see how some people, people would feel this more acutely and, and take out their, their sense of loneliness and frustration and, and social alienation to take that out in, in a, strident way to, to try to find a reason for it. And in simple minds, a reason often means some enemy, someone or thing that's out to undo you, that's trying to, in almost a paranoid vision, there must be, if something bad is happening in my world, it must be because somebody is, is engineering it against me. <laughs> but this is the natural reaction. It's not a very good one. <laughs> it's, it's often one that leads to kind of extreme conclusions. Uh, but I think this helps us understand the phenomenon of the rise of religious terrorism. Right. So one of the most common claims I hear is that religion causes terrorism, right? Or I have so many friends and there are so many quote, public intellectuals in the world who say, well, if you get rid of religion, then terrorism will go away. Or if you get rid of religion, the world will be better or X, Y, and Z things, whatever. Um, and juxtaposing the few things that you've said next to each other, I think sort of illuminates how complex a question that is because religion can influence and exacerbate terrorism, right? But the would you say that religion is what causes it? Or is it rather like these things about identity, these struggles with who we are and our desires to be safe that then can become sort of um, like a, and a, like they make religion or the religious narratives that are violent more alluring? Yeah, you put that very well. Yeah, I mean, if you want to get rid of religious violence, get rid of those humans. And they're the nasty people who are causing it, you know, somewhat do away with them. Uh, I mean, first of all, religion doesn't do anything. You know, it's simply a cultural expression of peoples. And, and so people are going to express themselves and they're going to use those cultural expressions in different ways. Um, so it, it's not an agent uh, that can actually cause things to happen. Uh, a colleague of mine, Wilfred Campbell Smith, some years ago advocated in a book called The Meaning and End of Religion, mm -hmm. the uh, evolution of the term religion. And he said religion has become you know, a very difficult concept. He says it's not a traditionally used concept. Uh, you know, in the, in the West, the term religion really is, rose at the time of the Enlightenment when they were trying to separate out secular and religion. They invented the, this violent 
bifurcated world that we now live in, secular and religious. Before then, there was no such bifurcation, and therefore no need for a word called religion, as if there was something different from secularism. We all just lived in the culture that we lived in, and there were faith and tradition, and those are terms he thinks that has validity. But he thinks that as scholars, we're trying to be analytically uh, accurate. We should simply abandon the, the word because it has no meaning. <laughs> there could be, it can be used as an adjective. There can be religious this and that, right. but not as noun. Because if you express it as a noun, you kind of infer or imply, and then we infer from that, that there is a kind of agency to religion uh, that, in fact, it doesn't have. And, and, and I tend to agree with that. I mean, I still use the term religion. <laughs> and so did Wilford, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually, Bob Bella, a, a sociologist colleague of mine, was really quite adamant that religion is something. It is a perception, of course. It doesn't have agency. I absolutely agrees with that. But as a perception, it does have a, a kind of character to it that you when you can call as you, you can call it the religious mentality or the religious. But, you know, that's kind of what we mean by religion. Uh, but because it doesn't have agency, it is simply a cultural expression. Then it's the, what humans make of it. <laughs> that makes a difference. And because it is such a rich repository of cultural symbols, including these kind of great images of warfare, when these are implanted on our material world or the, our mundane world around it, it can give them a kind of luminosity, a kind of uh, character, uh, uh, an enhanced uh, absolutism that makes it much more dif difficult to deal with conflict. So the way you put it, I think, is quite accurate. Religion doesn't do anything, but to imagine a conflict in religious terms can be, uh, can make a very unfortunate, have a very unfortunate result. It can empower uh, combatants to use violence with the kind of uh, moral uh, freedom that otherwise they wouldn't have enjoyed. Uh, it, it can lead them to be engaged in battle, even when they're losing, as I described with, the, you know, the Hamas leader, uh, because they think God is on their side and ultimately they, they'll win. Uh, it, it makes it more difficult to negotiate because if the conflict is, you know, if God is on one side, you don't negotiate with God, right? So, <laughs> So religion can, the simple way of putting it is religion is not the problem, but religion can be problematic. That's a nice sentence. I will, I will quote you. I'll write that down and quote you. Um, I, I think, so then when we look at different religions, this becomes really important because obviously in the West, it is common to conflate Islam with religious violence. But if all religious narratives have cause images of cosmic warfare that can be lionized, then there really is potential for religious violence kind of any, anywhere that we might look, right? There is yeah, and not just potential. You don't have to lift very many stones to find it there. Uh, and one of the things that I try to demonstrate in my book, Terror in the Mind of God, is that religion, religious violence is everywhere, in every religious tradition. Mm -hmm. In the United States, for example, d despite the kind of paralyzing fear of, of, of Islamophobia that Muslims are out to get us, uh, the acts of terrorism in recent years are almost all 
by by Christians. Uh, some of them express themselves as nationalists, but often they they are undergirded by a sense of Christian nationalism, a white Christian nationalism that they feel that they are protecting. And this is certainly true of Timothy Bebay, who uh, whose attack on the Oklahoma City Federal Building in the United States was the largest act of terrorism in the United States before 9-11. And if you look at his favorite book, The Turner Diaries, which he used to hawk at gun shows and was found in the trunk of his car when he was arrested, it's all about an imagined war, a great battle between these true Christians who are part of a, a, a group called The Order, capital T, capital O. <laughs> and they are initiated into like a monastic movement. They are more true Christians, they don't call themselves a church because they think that churches have been bought out by the multicultural, liberal, even the evangelical churches. They are not, you know, the true Christians, the true manly Christians. And they are very specific about the masculine image, imagery because they think only white, male, heterosexual Christians <laughs> are capable of leading the battle uh, to restore America to its true greatness. And so... Timothy Bay's attack on the Oklahoma Federal Building, he hoped would be kind of excite this war. It would be a demonstration that the war existed, the battle was there, and the time had come for all righteous Christians to rise up and to rise up against this, uh, you know, the cruel, mediocre, multicultural, <laughs> liberal <laughs> uh, culture of the West. But that didn't happen, of course, just as almost exactly the same idea that was perpetrated by the attackers on the, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on 9-11. Exactly, exactly the same kind of image, except they were Muslims, and they thought that this act was going to shake up Muslims around the world, and suddenly they were going to think in terms of war. Well, most Muslims were too smart for that. They, they didn't immediately think in terms of war. The only true believers were just a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand who were supporters of Al-Qaeda. The only people who really bought into that image was us, was the United States government and the Bush administration, who suddenly talked in terms of war, cosmic war, yeah. you know, the war on terror. Very same imagery that the attackers used in 9-11. And, and here I was, you know, kind of lone academic on talk shows going around saying, stop, stop, you know, stop using their language. We're buying into their image. We're actually inadvertently supporting the worldview that they were trying to project uh, project in attacking the World Trade Center in the first place. But unfortunately, you know, we're still mired in the consequences of that. The United States is still involved in military in Iraq and Iran. Yeah. yeah I mean, excuse me, Iraq, not yet Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan. I was getting ahead of myself. I Maybe hope by, by the, the time, time this, you listen to this podcast, we still will not have gone to war with Iran. It's one of these horrible possibilities. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, there we are. There we are. Yeah. So talking about the future you're you're absolutely correct maybe by the time this podcast comes out in a few months you know there will be action in iran the and it will be a kind of imagine war and terror that spurs that war also if that's the case but i right. hope the american public is sensible enough and and empowered enough to keep that from happening well it's so enticing right the <laughs> the participation in these narratives i mean that's that's entirely yeah. your point and we don't it doesn't seem to be slowing down. Right. 
you know, there's, there's, I don't see the brakes on currently. Um, so I'm prompted to ask, and I'm very sorry for my ignorance, but you said that you actually first got into studying this when you were, um, working and living in India and watching these sorts of things happen. And it was a few decades ago. And I'm wondering if having studied and observed these kinds of movements happening throughout the world, if you have any sort of insight as to what can, if anything, can tamper them. Ah, what a wonderful segue to uh, tell you, tell you about the topic I'm working on now. Great. I'm working on a long multi-year project on how terrorist movements end. And so the reason that I was talking with the ISIS fighters in Iraq just a month ago was to try to figure that out. That uh, is, what was it? Uh, how did they know that the war was over? <laughs> how did it come to the end? And is it really over? And I've been going back to the Khalistani people, you know, it's now 25 years since that movement had ended. But now I'm going back and talking with old militants and old people who are fighting against them to try to figure out what happened, to try to get some perspective. When did they sense that the cosmic war was over uh, and they no longer, uh, you know, the, the struggle would no longer longer, longer work? And I've also, uh, I have several cases I'm looking at, including the Moros in the southern Philippines in the Mindanao, uh, the Muslim movement for a separate Mindanao in southern Philippines. Mm -hmm. And again, they're in the midst of a peace process and the movement is kind of edging towards being over. See, these are three uh, areas where really viciously terrorist movements and some of the most horrible acts of terrorism are now kind of morphing into a situation of, I hate to call it peace, <laughs> let's at least call it non-terrorism or non-violence. And the reason I say that is because one of the things I discovered that in many cases, like the ISIS fighters that I was just talking about that I talked with a month ago in, in, uh, in northern Iraq, in their imagination, the war is still there. There is still kind of they still think in these kind of cosmic war terms, but they say the time is not right now. It's, you know, the, the, the movement was ended. We had bad leadership. It was badly organized, you know, done better. Maybe we would have sustained ourselves, but whatever. Uh, they, they realize that just they're, they're not crazy people. They realize that, that, that uh, you know, the, the time is not right for the kind of revolution that they had in mind. And so they're willing to, withdraw. And in some cases, they do change their way of thinking. There's a fellow in, in the Philippines, for example, who had been a real fighter uh, in, in kind of paramilitary movements. Uh, and, and with this kind of cosmic vision of, of great jihad, uh, and he's, for one thing, he's gotten older, he's married, he has a job and family responsibility. Uh, and also he's just thinking kind of beyond the war, you know, and his, does he want to spend his whole life battling. So he's forming a political party. He intends to take the issues to the ballot box, you know, to mm. uh, to be a part of be a part of the government, at least the loyal opposition at the beginning. But he hopes that, that you know, for larger electoral success. So uh, so both things happen. Uh, cosmic war slips into other kinds of more real, realistic, more uh, this-worldly kind of uh, conflicts and contests. Uh, and, and in some cases, the images of cosmic war persist, but people become more realistic. And one of the old fighters, I asked him, you know, <clears throat> if you could get out of prison, 
right now, would you rejoin the movement? He said, well, no. He says, there's no movement to join into. And he said, maybe you'll become a mechanic, you know, and, and he wants to raise a family. And so, so I was thinking, you know, 10 years from now, I could, my car could break down in Northern Iraq. And, and the mechanic is this old ISIS fighter. And he's, you know, fixing my carburetor. But he's also telling me, yeah, yeah, and if a chance comes again, you know, we're going to join the great struggle and, you know, God will succeed. But right now you have some problems with your carburetor. It just meant a limit. <laughs> you know? So that, that could happen because, you know, a lot of us, you know, harbor wacky feelings uh, and wacky ideas. Uh, and I think other people are willing to tolerate that as long as you're not killing people on the basis of it, as long as you're able to survive and ordinary civil society. So um, I know that's not a very satisfactory uh, kind of description of the termination of, of terrorism, but it, it, it takes a combination of things. I think it does take real force, police, military force to show the limits of violence, but not excessive force. Because if there's excessive force, then that kind of leads to that image of cosmic war that the Combatants think, oh, great, now we really are in the battle. So it really spurs them on. It's, it has an opposite effect. So it has to be a very measured, calculated kind of approach, and it has to be in civil law. You have to bring people to courts. You have to show them the power of normal civil society. You can't just take them out and kill them. Take them out and kill them and say, oh, great, you're buying in our terms. That's what we do. You know, you right. kind of verify the legitimacy of the cosmic war ideas that they've been thinking about. But you take them off and put them into incarceration and then have a legal trial and allow them to have uh, a legal uh, you know, support for their positions, then you're showing, hey, you know, there is another way of life and there is another way of dealing even with somebody like you who thinks that we're evil. Uh, if you've done bad things, you have to be accountable for it in a civil court. And I think that makes, that has a very strong um, message in terms of kind of normalizing the situation and bringing people back into uh, a state of civil society. Yeah, there's, there's almost this sense in which there is um, so much intensity in the narratives and in the actions, right? These huge acts of sacrifice and suicide and what have you and all of the fervor around it and it may just be the case that over time it's it's hard to sustain right i actually i've spoken yeah. i've spoken with many academics who or people who work with uh de-radicalizing terrorist groups and and everybody pretty much says like yeah some people like eventually just want to have kids you know um right. and that's important but also the thing about are they are they turned off by the infighting and all of the corrupt you know because power right. the power grabbing all the stuff that goes on in any organization yeah you get tired of it but you know you mentioned that your mechanic in 10 years would maybe still be carrying this narrative that's yeah. really interesting because it's like you get to imagine the mechanic gets to imagine that he's participating in this cosmic war you know gets to sort of live into the the narrative live into the fantasy of it being the case without actually it having to be the case. I'm not right. saying that's necessarily great for society, but it's better than actual violence. 
Yeah, absolutely. But it does show that in terms of counterterrorism, and by the way, I apologize for my squeaky old wooden uh, office here. Uh, <laughs> but it, it does show that if, if you're trying to do counterterrorism, one thing that probably doesn't work is to try to talk people out of it, to try to show them that their version of Islam, for example, is not real Islam. Hey, I have a moderate mullah here. He's going to tell you that your way of thinking about Islam is not correct. And they're going to look at him and say, yeah, he's a moderate mullah. Get him out of here. <laughs> you know, That's going to be so unpersuasive. Because <laughs> as I say, many of these people continue to harbor the same ideas. Uh, and they're not easily talked out of it. Because once you kind of buy into this religious narrative, you're buying into a whole kind of way of looking at religion and its relationship to life. But you can certainly persuade people about the impracticality of doing what they're doing and about the possibility of, of, a, of, a, of an interesting civil life. That it, one of the things that the, that the Philippines government is doing in Southern Mindanao, I think, is so smart, and that is it, it takes some of these old fighters, these old moral fighters, people who like, joined the movement when they were 16. All they know is killing. All they know is fighting. That's all that they've ever done. And they put them in retraining camps. They teach them how to be mechanics. They teach them how to be plumbers. They teach them how to do things in the world so that, that they can go out and actually get a real job and they can be productive in society mm-hmm. and that they can uh, they can see, they can have a have the hope of an alternative outside of this movement. Because just on a very practical level, level, if you can't imagine life outside of this movement, if your whole social structure is, you know, the the brotherhood or whatever within the movement and your whole kind of knowledge in terms of your employable skills is how to shoot a weapon and how to be a part of an army. It's very difficult to imagine yourself or even to make that transition into another way of being. And this is where I think uh, efforts to try to retrain people, re-socialize people, provide them the opportunity, not force them into it, but to provide them the opportunity to imagine themselves in a different way of life can make a huge difference. Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And I feel like I love that I see these solutions coming from a wide variety of fields, right, in the study of religion and social psychology and cognitive psychology. Um, I think that's really great. We're actually um, kind of running up on time. I have one more question I want to ask you. Sure. That's okay. Yeah, but just to add to this, you can splice it in if you want it or not, that if you think religion is the problem, then you think, oh, changing the religion is the solution. Mm. The fact that changing the religion isn't the solution should give you a little clue that maybe religion wasn't the problem in the first place. <laughs> maybe it's, the problem is always humans, you know? Yeah. <laughs> always human. uh, those, those darn humans, they're the, they're, if you get rid of them, we'll get rid of the problem. Yeah. So, uh, so we've just discussed the sort of de-radicalization of, of terrorism and extreme violence. Uh, but what can we do if is there anything we can do about sort of halting it before it stops, right? So we're religionizing, I think might be the phrase. Halting it before it starts. Mm-hmm. Right, like we're religionizing our political discourse and we are seeing like a ratcheting up of intensity of, yeah. of the narratives that we're using in, in the States and in the West. And like what people already know how to be mechanics, right? And so is the solution to provide a sense of self-esteem or identity in a particular way, or is it to change the way we 
you know, provide social services or, or the way our secular governments are set up? Like, do you have any ideas about that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real difficult problem. I mean, the, the, previously, the, we used to say the problem with dealing with bad speech is more speech, to have more availability for people to hear different points of view. The problem that we have in, in the Internet age and the age of, of cable television is that we are, our information is siloed. That is, we, we choose our sources of information and the very algorithms of Facebook or Twitter or, uh, or YouTube supply us with the same kind of information, the same kind of channels. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you're into one kind of political perspective, one kind of political point of view, then you're going to be bombarded by and get more and more information that reinforce that political perspective, that particular point of view. So if you think, uh, you know, all Muslims are evil and you start going online with that interest, then within a matter of minutes, you will get scads of, of informational sources that verify exactly what you're thinking, because that's exactly what our sources of information do to us. <clears throat> that's a real problem. And, and how to cut through it. I think one thing that, that these media outlets should be held accountable uh, that there should be some way of at least moderating or mitigating these kinds of uh, algorithms that particularly when they uh, provide more extreme visions or versions of, of people's, um, you know, people's points of view. Um, we certainly should do something to try to prohibit uh, foreign governments from creating bots that, <laughs> that, that, you know, permeate our, our, Twitter and Facebook uh, feeds and our airways in, in a way that uh, we imagine that now the whole country is rising up in order to support a particular point of view. So, yes, there has to be increasing government regulation of the, particularly on the social media, our sources of information. Um, but in addition to that, I think we also need to, those of us who have other sources of information need to speak out. Uh, we need to provide uh, as much public information as we possibly can. We need to go on podcasts, for example, <laughs> and, and, and talk, with, <laughs> talk with people about uh, the way in which we as academics see the world, because uh, even though we're not perfect, we usually have spent some time trying to figure out why things are the way they are. <clears throat> and to be able to share that with the, with the public, I think it's our, our moral as well as our intellectual responsibility. I agree. That is why I am here. Great. Um, okay, so you're doing a lot of very important things to help the world. So I want to let you go so you can go do them. Um, if you have anything left that you want to say, now is the now is the time to no, do it. No, it's been a good conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, and for everybody listening, I will provide links uh, to many of the books, uh, which are actually very good reads and not full of intellectual jargon. So um, Terror in the Mind of God is a great read. I do recommend it. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Jurgensmeyer. Yes. Great. I will provide links to uh, his social media profiles as well. So um, thank you again, Professor. This has been really fantastic. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, great. Take care. Bye-bye.